Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Most time with the show as I speak. It is Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. My distinguished guest is uh, waiting uh, to be brought on. Before I bring him on, I just want to tell you something that's in the news today that makes me laugh every time I read about it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I would say I'm saying this, my distinguished guests will be listening and uh, wondering if, if, if he agrees with this. I say the standards of ethics in the city of Chicago and the county of Cook are higher. Yes, higher. I know people are stunned, but you say the standard of ethics in the city of Chicago and the county of Cook are higher. People are automatically, how could they possibly be higher than anything? Well, I'll tell you what they're higher than. They're higher than the U.S. Supreme Court. That's what they're higher than. The U.S. Supreme Court issued an ethics code on Monday. Folks, this is like comedy. So just to remind all of you out there, I know you're all political junkies. I really don't have to remind any of you because you know this stuff inside out. If you're listening to my show, you're a political junkie and you're smart. So the Supreme Court, some of the justices of the Supreme Court have been caught in some ethical, ethically embarrassing situations, including one Mr. Clarence Thomas uh, taking airplane trips and vacations and a motor home. And I think a uh, help with his mother's house and a kid to college from all these rich guys who have cases that come before the Supreme Court. He's not the only one, a bunch of them. You know, who was the, which job? Well, one of them was on a fishing trip with some rich guy. Who was, <laughs> God, it's so embarrassing. Like if this stuff happened in Illinois, just think about the outrage. Like, you know, here in Illinois, I mean, we have so many corrupt politicians. But at least they pay a consequence for their corruption. Anyway, the Supreme Court's always say, you know, even though it looks like it's we're ethically compromised, we're not. And so you just have to trust us on this. So allow us to continue to take our airplane flights from our, on private jets from rich guys. Well, it got so embarrassing that they issued ethical code on Monday. And guess what? 
left unclear, this is from the New York Times, was how the rules would be enforced, and the court said it was still studying how any code would be put into effect. In other words, they didn't do anything. What they simply stated was, yes, we shouldn't do the things that we're doing, and we're not quite sure if we're going to continue doing them, but we know we shouldn't do them. And here's the part that cracks me up, man. So that's that's pretty bad in and of itself. But then the New York Times dutifully tracks down these law professors. Now, my distinguished guest, I, I'm not make I, I love lawyers as much as the next guy. But these law professors, come on, law professors, can you take a stand for crying out loud? Here's some law professor from the University of Virginia. I don't know any of these law professors, so I'm sure they're wonderful people. This is a small but significant step in the right direction. No, it's not, law professor. <laughs> I'm no legal scholar, but this is not a step in the right direction if it's, uh, yeah, without any kind of obligation to do the right thing, just sort of like, yeah, we have been doing the wrong thing, and mm, we'll probably keep doing it. That's not in the right direction. That, that's a one professor named Amanda Frost. Then um, this uh, another law professor named Daniel Epps do not know any of these law professors. This is what he told the New York Times, quote, it's good that they dis- did this. It's good that they feel some obligation to respond to public criticism and act like they care. No, quote, no, it's not ju- or law professor. It's not good that they did this because if they do this and nothing else, they just give the pretense that they've done something of significance. So, no, it's not good. Sorry, law professor. God, I would have kicked out of law school. They wouldn't have kept me in law school for one day. Let's see. Look, I'll get one more law professor before I bring on my uh, distinguished guest. Let's see. Well, there's another law professor, and here we go. Oh, uh, <laughs> here we go. This gentleman is a law professor at Hofstra University. His name is James Sample. Will this code of conduct solve the problems? No. There will certainly be questions as to enforcement. There will be questions as to details, and you can quibble over certain of provisions. But this is a significant step. Huh? What? How could it be a significant step if the three, two sentences before it, you said there's no enforcement and there's no details? You know, I'm starting to think that the problem with the law are these law professors. Anyway, without further ado, I think I've insulted every lawyer in the city of Chicago who loves their professors with great ardor, including my distinguished guest, who I will now ask to introduce himself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Go. Hi, it's Flint Taylor from the People's Law Office here in Chicago. Yes, uh, Flint Taylor, dear friend of the show, radical lawyer, uh, author of the book, The Torture Machine, Racism and Political Violence in Chicago. I urge everybody to go read it. Uh, if you're too broke to buy it, check it out of the library. It's at all the library branches in the Chicago, or many of them, The Torture Machine. Flint, before we take the deep dive into the culture of, of corruption in the city of Chicago and the culture of racism in the city of Chicago, let me ask you this. Do you think I was too hard on law professors? Do you think I owe the law professors of America an apology for the rant that I went on before I began this interview? Go ahead. Well, I think that the rant, uh, by implication, is a rant against the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, uh, Thomas Alito, you you referred to him and his fishing trips uh, because we had Scalia before him. And, and as it turns out, Chief Justice Roberts himself, who, who tries to act a little more pious than some of these um, hard right uh, judges on the, on the court, 
he, his wife is all up in, in this as well. So, um, yeah, no enforcement, that's kind of a laugh, you know. Um, it's only significant if they start to bring down some of these judges. Uh, these judges, uh, the, the conflicts of interest are, you know, supreme, to, to, to coin a phrase. Um, and, uh, you know, what they're doing up there uh, without any kind of checks and balances is basically, you know, uh, completely out of control. Uh, in terms of, of, of the politics of, of the court. So that, that's even more outrageous than, than their ethical violations. Yeah, I, uh, I just, I, maybe I was a little hard on the law professors. You know, they got to swim in the, in the, in the wa- same waters with the chief judges. And maybe, they have, maybe these law professors have cases that go before the judges. You don't want to, like, bash the judge that, that you go come before. Flint Taylor could probably tell you a thing or two about that. It's problematic, to put it uh, mildly. Uh, you want to say nice things about the judges you come before. Uh, so, okay, maybe I was too hard on them. Uh, all right, so folks, let me just give a like a brief uh, introduction uh, to Flint, and um, we'll take the conversation from there. Uh, so the reader uh, asked me every year. The reader has a people's issue, uh, and that's an issue dedicated to people that you should know. To paraphrase the great Harry Porterfield, who died, these are people that you should know. Maybe you don't know them, but you should know them uh, because they're doing extraordinary things with their lives. Uh, they're interesting people. Uh, they they have a different worldview. All many different reasons. They're celebrities on before they become celebrities. So now you know them before they're celebrities. That kind of thing. And this is a an annual uh, feature in the reader. Reader's been doing this for years. So they asked me if I would write about Flint Taylor. And I said, of course, Flint Taylor. I'm a big uh, a fan of Flint Taylor's. Uh, he's kind of a mini hero of mine because uh, I'm a little younger than Flint. So he was already on the scene when I got here causing trouble. And um, so I told Flint, I'm going to do this story about you uh, for people's. And he goes, all right, well, I'm going to send you some articles that the readers wrote about me in the past. And he sent me this one article uh, that I just like kind of blew my mind. It was called the heavy 75. And Flint, I got that article. I <laughs> I was just laughing. So first of all, shout out to Flint Taylor. The heavy, seven, heavy, heavy 75 is kind of like the people's issue from back in the day in 1975. So this is the only man who's on the heavy 75 from 75 who's on the people's issue of 2023. So he has stood the test of time. All right. Uh, and the heavy is 70 slang for like hip or cool that's so uh, a lot of people don't know what uh uh heavy means so that's like she's so heavy by john lennon go look it up millennials anyway uh a flint that's pretty good heavy 75 and people's issue you got any reflections on that yeah it's a long time to be involved that's for sure and uh you know you just keep swinging uh, sometimes you hit them and sometimes you miss them. But uh, if, if you're still, you know, healthy enough and, and still have that spirit about you, uh, you can keep swinging and stepping into the, to the batter's box, so to speak. I know you're a sportsman, as am I. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it, but, you know, being serious about it, it's an honor, obviously. The reader... Uh, as I mentioned to you before, is something in, back in the day that you'd go and get 
you know, get it out of the box every week. And uh, look for people uh, like uh, Bob McClory, who used to write for the Reader and write wonderful articles. And uh, then comes along Ben Jaworski, and you had to had to read him every week. And so it's uh, it's still going, you know. It, it, and and even though you don't get it in the box anymore, it's still an important alternative voice. And so yeah. to be named. A heavy seventy-five, and then to have you uh, write about me, I, uh, all all jokes put aside, I, I find it to be an honor. Uh, all right, let's talk about that uh, alternative voice, the concept of an alternative voice. Your alternative alternative voice, my alternative voice, has to do with politics. And you gave me a great compliment. You said you, I think you agree with me ninety-eight point three percent of the time. So there's one point seven percent of the time I somehow other miss it. Uh, your alternative voice was to challenge uh, the Democratic Party, the ruling elite in this city uh, through the court system on high-profile cases uh, against black people. Uh, and the first one uh, was the, uh, the trial in the aftermath of the murder of Fred Hampton. And I urge everybody, we're probably not going to redo that. Just go Listen to the conversation I had with Flynn a couple of years ago. He took us from A to Z. I, it's just, I believe it's required listening, if I must say so myself, if you want to want to understand uh, what the depths, the depths of the cover-up, Flynn, not just the murder of Fred Hampton. I'm, I'm getting upset just thinking about it. Not just the murder, but the cover-up. Just, just give a brief. This is why you were on the Heavy 75, because you were in the midst of a 13-year journey suing the city on this issue, trying to get uh, some money for Fred Hampton's survivors from the city. Uh, and when in 1975, so you were like year five of something that took eight more years. That's how much they resisted. The powers that be in this town, Flint, trying to do the right thing and, and, and acknowledging what went down. So why don't you just give a brief re recit, uh, recitation on that so folks know what, the, what was going on. Well, Fred Hampton, as, as old timers may know, was a charismatic young leader, 21 years old, of the Black Panther Party here. And he was targeted not only by the powers that be in the police department, uh, Ed Hanrahan, who was the state's attorney and a very powerful machine politician on, his, uh, on a path to take uh, Daly the first uh, spot as mayor. Um, and as it turned out, the FBI and its notorious COINTELPRO program uh, were all focused on the Panthers back in 1969 uh, and specifically their, their, their charismatic young leader, Fred Hampton. So they planned a raid uh, for 4.30 in the morning on the apartment where Fred Hampton uh, and many young Panthers were staying. Uh, they, uh, Panthers made no, uh, they did not hide the fact that they, they talked about arming themselves against police violence. Uh, and in fact, uh, the raid took place. Uh, Fred was, as it turned out later, uh, most likely dr drugged by an FBI informant. And he was killed, murdered, assassinated uh, on his bed uh, in the early morning of December 4th, 1969. Another young Panther, Mark Clark, was also murdered. And several Panthers from the ages of 17 upwards uh, were shot in their beds 
arrested and, and wrongfully charged with attempted murder. And so started uh, a 13-year saga. Uh, I happened to, to be a law student at that time working with the People's Law Office. We represented that, the, the Fred Hampton and the Panthers at that time. So I ended up in that apartment along with many of my colleagues uh, early in the morning of December 4th to stand in Fred Hampton's blood. Now, I was 23, he was 21. It, I could understand the differences between being a young white uh, radical lawyer-to-be uh, and him being a radical or revolutionary black leader. Uh, and from there, uh, I ended up uh, as a lawyer uh, and fighting the case, as you mentioned, uh, for, four, for 13 years, during which time we uncovered not only that it wasn't a shoot-in, as Hanrahan and his police officers uh, claimed, uh, not only was it, uh, I'm sorry, not only was it not a shoot-out, but it was rather a shoot-in, uh, with uh, 90 bullets being fired by the police and only one by the Panthers, uh, that it not only wasn't a shootout, but it was a murder. And not only was it a murder, as we uncovered uh, several years later, but it was an assassination that came from Washington and that was part of COINTELPRO and was orchestrated by the FBI's Racial Matter Squad and their crack FBI provocateur, William O'Neill. William O'Neill, uh, for folks who've seen the movie uh, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, is the character played by the Keith Stanfield, uh, brilliantly played by the Keith Stanfield, uh, uh, I might add. I just did a story uh, for about a couple of weeks ago about rats. The reader was having a special issue on rats. Follow me on this, uh, Flint. And it was rats of the four-legged kind. And so they asked me to write an essay about it. And instinctively, I couldn't help myself. I was drawn to politics. So I wrote a story about rats of the two-legged kind. Uh, and that is the people who uh, turn state's evidence or wear a wire uh, for the authorities in order to lessen or reduce the penalty that they're facing. And the three that I chose, I picked the, like the three most significant rats in the city of Chicago, uh, John Christopher, who ran the dumps uh, on the west side of Chicago, uh, taking payoffs from politicians, was uh, one of them. Uh, Danny Solis, who wore the wire that brought down uh, Ed Burke, was another one. And then William O'Neill. Uh, and I wanted to take a moment to just think of, reflect on, I don't know, like, the legacy, if I don't even know if it is a legacy, but the story of William O'Neill and the significance, in your humble opinion, uh, to Chicago. Well, I'm, I certainly uh, concur with your putting him in the, in the top three of Chicago rats, uh, provocateurs, as it were. Uh, he started out uh, in 1968 at the behest of the FBI, who had him by the throat based on some charges, uh, federal charges that he was uh, subjected to, to infiltrate the Panthers as they began, as they were born on the west side with Fred Hampton and Bobby Rush as their leaders. And he wormed his way in as uh, captain of security. Uh, he was always uh, in the vanguard of trying to provoke the Panthers to do illegal acts. 
uh, he was at the apartment the night before the December 4th raid. Uh, but a couple of weeks before that, he and his control agent, uh, Roy Martin Mitchell, uh, uh, sketched out a floor plan of the apartment where Fred Hampton would be sleeping, uh, had the bed where he would be sleeping on, had all the names of the people who would be there. Uh, it was a, quite a complete sketch, uh, and that sketch became the basis of the raid on the Hampton apartment. And it was uh, given to Hanrahan and his uh, 14 raiders, uh, and they took it. Uh, and, of course, they targeted that bed and, and, and the man who was on it uh, and, and ultimately assassinated him while he was sleeping. And the fact that he didn't wake up, uh, we later determined, was because he had been drugged. Uh, and he had been drugged with Sika Barbatol. Uh, and although O'Neill never admitted to it, he certainly was the prime suspect to having drugged Fred Hampton. Uh, after Hampton was assassinated, of course, uh, the city, and particularly the black community, uh, was in an uproar. Uh, there was many demands for uh, an independent investigation, and there was uh, a funeral uh, for Fred that was attended to by thousands of people. Uh, and one of the pallbearers in Fred Hampton's funeral was the man who supplied the floor plan, William O'Neill. And not only was at that very time he was acting as one of the most uh, extreme double agents that you can imagine, but that his boss, Mitchell, the FBI agent, uh, was so pleased with the fact that Hampton and Clark had been murdered and the Panthers had been, they thought, uh, sent into disarray, uh, that they petitioned uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the, the, the notorious head of the FBI, in Washington for a bonus for O'Neill, and also a bonus for Mitchell, we later learned as well. And that bonus uh, turned out to be uh, $300, uh, which uh, was the 30 pieces of silver for O'Neill. So at the very time that O'Neill was serving as a pallbearer, he was also getting a bonus, which uh, would translate today to around $2,000 or so for his handiwork in making the raid, in the FBI's own words, a success. Wow. Man, every time I hear that, it just it's just such a gut punch. They gave him a bonus uh, for leading to the killing of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Uh, and it's just a little twist. Uh, so the actor who played the FBI agent, uh, Roy, what's Roy's last name again? Martin, Roy Martin, Martin. Mitchell. Yeah, Mitchell. Mitchell. I was, yeah, Roy Mitchell. I always get the Mitchell. Uh, anyway, the actor who played him in the movie uh, is a gentleman named Jesse Plemons. Fast forward to this year, uh, Martin Scorsese's movie, uh, The Killer of the Flower Moon, uh, comes out great flick. I urge everybody to see it. Uh, the hero is an FBI agent in that movie more or less the hero of the movie. Uh, and he's played by the same actor. So in one movie, the same actor is an evil FBI agent up to uh, bad things. And in the other movie, uh, he's sort of the, the good guy. 
Well, you know, if, if I can interrupt for a second, um, the uh, Stanfield was, was, was really, really good as O'Neill. And I sat in many a room and got threatened by O'Neill uh, while I was uh, involved in taking his deposition. So I got to study him, and I actually was uh, part of getting that video uh, of him that the public uh, TV had in Eyes on the Prize some uh, 20 years later, uh, just before he committed suicide. And, I, and Stanfield was so close to O'Neill that it gave me the shivers. Um, and uh, the man who played Fred, as good an actor as he was, really couldn't fully capture how powerful a speaker and a personality Fred Hampton was. But the man who played o uh, Mitchell was the least like the person he was portraying. Uh, the Mitchell that, again, that I and my fellow uh, lawyers uh, spent many a day in, in closed rooms, smoke-filled rooms in those days, questioning him, uh, was uh, a prototypic button-down, you know, crew-cut uh, um, FBI agent. And I just felt that the portrayal of Mitchell uh, in, on the spectrum in that movie was the farthest from the, the Mitchell of any of the main characters. Did you think what they were trying to be sympathetic to him? I don't know. I, I, I don't really think so, but he, um, he certainly wasn't duped in any way. You know, he certainly was, uh, was large and in charge of, of the, uh, squad that was uh, focused on the Black Panthers. Uh, so, no, I didn't think that they necessarily played him sympathetically. I just thought his character was kind of, uh, didn't really capture the full, you know, I don't know if it's evil or, the, you know, the, 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 the reality of what the FBI and its attack on, on the Black Panthers and the Black movement was really all about. Uh, and uh, you, you mentioned uh, that uh, O'Neill threatened you. Talk a little bit about that. How so, and uh, what were the circumstances? Well, it was kind of offhanded, you know, at, at some point, and I don't remember all the details because at that point, you know, the, the stakes were so high in that case, and, and you were kind of always looking over your shoulder because you were suing uh, seven cops uh, who – you know, brought a machine gun and, and, and all sorts of weapons down to the apartment and killed your client and, and, and friend, Fred Hampton, along with, you know, uh, the FBI who had this completely illegal and, and violent program. So uh, in some ways, it was a, you constantly felt under threat, but there was a situation, uh, and, and I guess... Um, you know, I'd have to go back for the details of it now. All I know is there was a break in the action in the, depos in the deposition, and he made some, some threat towards me specifically for something that I said uh, on the record. Um, and, of course, thinking back on it, uh, I probably should have been a little more concerned than I really was at that time. Yeah, we were a young man. Uh, and, uh, you may have felt, uh, what 
invulnerable to a certain degree, uh, as the young young people tend. Uh, that's uh, something that comes with being young. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, just to close the story on O'Neill, he committed suicide uh, soon, not long after he gave that interview uh, with Eyes on a Prize. Uh, he committed suicide uh, here in Chicago. Uh, in the aftermath, when you think about him, do you have, well, what are your feelings about him? Well, he he played his role very well. Uh, you could see him, I suppose, as uh, a real tool, you know, some somebody who was used uh, by the powers that be, by the government, um, but on the other hand, you know, you have to consider uh, snitches uh, as uh, people who um, have some control over what they do, and, you know, he didn't have to do what he did. Uh, I think he got a certain uh, joy of life out of it. I mean, he uh, he always said, right, uh, that he wanted to be an FBI agent. In fact, one of the things he was uh, arrested for that led to his uh, becoming an, uh, an informant was he was impersonating an FBI agent. So irony of ironies. Um, you know, so, and, and the kinds of things that he did, setting up Fred Hampton, uh, having that kind of dual personality that he could do what I just described that he did. Uh, and also, uh, he was involved in how he actually got outed was because he was uh, working with a, 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 a Chicago cop named Stanley Robinson, and they were uh, shaking down and killing drug dealers. And so it was kind of a race to the courthouse, uh, whether uh, Robinson would come get there first and, and implicate O'Neill or whether O'Neill would get there first and implicate Robinson. And as it turned out, uh, O'Neill was uh, first and Jim Thompson was the, was the U.S. attorney. Uh, Chuck Kokoris was the uh, assistant U.S. attorney, now uh, judge, um, who was O'Neill's control in the states in the uh, U.S. attorney's office. And so O'Neill got outed and testified against Robinson. And that's how we actually learned that our client, William O'Neill, uh, Panther, uh, was in fact an FBI agent. Wow. Man, that just the levels of duplicity there involving the federal government, the local government, uh, the Cook County State's attorney. Uh, he was your client. Yes, you. I, and it turns out <laughs> while he was your client, he was an agent for the FBI. Yeah, um, definitely, definitely. Just yeah. the levels of this stuff. And I, again, I urge everybody to check out that first interview. Uh, 13 years it took before you were vindicated uh, with a settlement uh, in 1983. Uh, your case against John Burge, uh, and who was one of the most notorious figures uh, in Chicago, uh, we've never taken the deep dive on that one, Flint, and I think we should dedicate a whole show, actually, now I'm thinking about it, to the John Burge case, so uh, I will avoid the deep dive here because we don't even have the time. That would take a full hour, I think, uh, to get at it, and it's all of its um, many dimensions. Uh, but this was what 
uh, put John Birch's case in significant in his mind, and I'll set it up, and then you take it away. Uh, you sent me an article uh, about a week ago that ran in 1999 in the Chicago Tribune. Maurice Posey was shot out. He wrote the story. And it was about this twisted game that went on uh, in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office regarding defendants who were convicted. Uh, and I believe the attitude exhibited in that game that these lawyers played um, sort of led to the attitude of John Burge and the way he treated uh, black people in Chicago. Uh, and so why don't you tell listeners what the game was that the prosecutors played? This is probably back in the 60s uh, and 70s. Uh, and how you think that connects to John Burge and his crimes. Take it away. Well, you mentioned that, you know, uh, what I've been involved in is dealing with not only police violence, but, you know, how it goes up the ladder to the state's attorneys and the judges and the politicians. Uh, and uh, this is a perfect example of the intertwining of the code of silence and the racism, the systemic racism and white supremacy that not only uh, Burge was foundational in during the 70s and 80s in the torture of, of black men uh, who they arrested and took to the South Side Station at Area 2, uh, but those prosecutors who were in those station houses taking those confessions, hearing those men cry out, uh, sending those men back for more torture when they refused to give the confessions that, that, that were sought, uh, and uh, those prosecutors who took those confessions uh, and used them as evidence to send these black men to the penitentiary, many to death row. And of course, it started out uh, in my history uh, in, in the late 60s with Hanrahan. Um, Hanrahan was large and in charge. Uh, he was definitely, with his war on gangs, was a signal, uh, a very racist uh, kind of precursor to the whole idea of mass incarceration, law and order, all of that that came in in the late 60s and early 70s and, and, and continued down that road. But the Cook County State's Attorney's Office under Hanrahan uh, had this game. And this game was, and this was, uh, they had a scale uh, in the courtroom uh, underneath the, the, the prosecutor's uh, desk or underneath the table. Uh, and when black men were tried, um, they would be weighed if they were convicted by weighed, you know, with a scale. And the game was, it was called N-Word by the Pound. And every year they calculated up the weight of the black defendants who had been convicted by the individual prosecutors and whoever had the most weight in terms of pounds, uh, at the end of each year, won the contest. That was the degree of, of racism uh, that was blatant within the state's attorney's office under Hanrahan. And of course, uh, in the early 80s, when Burge was in his heyday, 
um, Richie Daly, uh, Richard M. Daly, was the state's attorney at that time, and he was using those um, confessions to get the same kind of convictions that were being gotten uh, in the 70s uh, and in the 60s uh, under the game uh, by the pound. Uh, and so the kind of just uh, systemic racism uh, that's reflected by the torture of Burge, and by torture, of course, we're talking about electric shock. We're talking about simulating suffocation with a plastic bag and a typewriter cover. We're talking about mock executions by shoving guns into people's mouths and putting them to their foreheads. We're talking about beatings with rubber hoses. Uh, we're talking about all the kinds of uh, medieval torture uh, that people really, as bad as police uh, thought had to have been across this country, um, you wouldn't think that these kind of, of torture techniques would be used as a systemic uh, brutality that they were here in the city of Chicago. Maybe in South Africa under apartheid, maybe in some of the um, Central and South American regimes, authoritarian regimes, but here in Chicago for 20 years, more than 130 documented cases. Wow, that really tells... And, Almost all of those being black men on the south and west sides of Chicago where Burge had his gang of white torturers who they uh, called, they called themselves the ass kickers, Burge's ass kickers. And they certainly were, and beyond that, to say the least. Wow. A lot, uh, there's a lot embedded in what you just said. Just think about it. Uh, so the Panther case, uh, the execution or assassination, murder of Fred Hampton, choose your word, uh, that was carried out by police officers assigned uh, to Ed, Rahan, Ed Handrahan's office, who's a Cook County State's attorney and a Democrat, uh, and done in conjunction with the FBI, whose uh, stool pigeon, uh, given the FBI and then the uh, state's attorney's office, the layout of the apartment, just following this, folks. It all took place during the era of Richard J. Daly, Mayor Richard J. Daly, who's all-powerful. Ed Hanrahan was the state's attorney because Daly slated him and uh, pushed him through the system uh, and uh, protected him. Uh, eventually, Daly tried to sh to shed himself of Hanrahan, as you know, in '72. Uh, Hanrahan won the the the, uh, the primary anyway, uh, and then went up and law against Bernard Carey and lost because black vote residents voted Republican in big numbers. Uh, so, a very significant moment in Chicago political history. How culpable, in your humble opinion, uh, is Mayor Richard J. Daly uh, for the uh, the Hampton murder. We'll get into Richard M. Daly in a little bit with Burge, but how culpable do you think Richard J. Daly was with the Hampton murder? Well, you only have to go back to uh, Daly's shoot to kill uh, mandate uh, a year before uh, during the uh, King uprisings and to uh, his uh, cops and how they acted during the Democratic National Convention to understand what the attitude was in the police department 
from the top down. The, the, the police obviously have a mandate uh, to shoot to kill. Um, and Daly joined with Hanrahan in 69 to uh, call for a war on gangs. And the war on gangs, uh, Hanrahan deftly included the Panthers, who were by no means a, quote, gang or street organization like uh, some of the other uh, organizations like the Black Peace Stone Nation, uh, the Vice Lords, and, and uh, other uh, organizations. Um, so Daly was right behind the political will to do what Hanrahan did. And what Hanrahan and, uh, was involved in the planning, of course, of the raid, uh, with these 14 specially selected police officers who were assigned to his office. Um, we could never get Daly's fingerprints on the actual raid, but certainly he countenanced it by everything uh, that he was about in terms of policing, in terms of what he was about in terms of policing in the black community, and what he was about in terms of policing against uh, street organizations and um, organizations uh, that were defiant of the powers that be in the city. And after the fact, Daly also deftly moved uh, around and about during the various cover-ups that took place of, of the Hampton case. He tried to very much maneuver the investigations to friendly uh, territory uh, and uh, was successful for a while. And as you mentioned, uh, when it got uh, too obvious and Hanrahan uh, was indicted, uh, despite the, 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 the very, very heavy work by Daly's uh, chief judge, uh, Powers, who was very tight with Daly and who did everything in his power to try to quash the indictment of Hanrahan and the Raiders, but ultimately the Illinois Supreme Court uh, released that indictment, and Hanrahan went on trial. And so at that point, Daly at least uh, uh, publicly disavowed himself from Hanrahan. But uh, um, when Hanrahan won the primary, uh, he brought him back to his bosom for the general election. And that was in 72. Uh, and, of course, there was a... Uh, a, a show trial of Hanrahan and his men in front of uh, one of Daly's close law school uh, friends, Judge Romitty, uh, who a week before the election acquitted Hanrahan. Uh, so everyone in the machine and Daly thought, well, uh, this will clear the path for Hanrahan to be reelected. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't plan for the fact or, or, or comprehend how deep the scars were and the anger was and the organization was on, in the black community. And as you mentioned, uh, Hanrahan may have uh, won that, uh, that trial, uh, that, that sham of a trial, uh, but he lost the election to Bernie Carey a couple of weeks later because of the outrage in the black community. And for the first time, I think in the history of the politics here in the city of Chicago, certainly in the last 50 years before that, black people voted Republican in large numbers and voted in Bernie Carey. Yeah, 
No, it was a, a, a huge election uh, in 1972. And uh, but everything you described is classic Richard J. Daly. Uh, yeah, you may not have found his fingerprints on the gun, uh, but every step of the way, he made life exceedingly difficult uh, for anybody looking to find the truth uh, about what went down and who is responsible for it. Which, again, ironically, going back to that heavy, heavy 75 article, the the, the the blurb they wrote about you and your law partner, Jeffrey Haas, is that you guys were, maybe you will eventually des- <laughs> uncover the truth. Because, like, we couldn't depend on the people who knew to tell us what they knew. You get what I'm saying? We, we had to play this 13-year game. They knew what happened, but they just didn't tell us what happened. All they, right. did, they did. They yeah. not only knew, but they were implicated in it. That's exactly. probably why. That's why they tried to cover it up. Uh, all right, let's move on to uh, Richard M. Daly, the son of Richard J. Daly, mayor of the city of Chicago from 1989 to 2011. Heck of a job, Chicago voters. Uh, wh- what? How much culpability do you think uh, that Daly, Richard M. Daly, has in uh, Burge's torture? Well, it's interesting because, of course, Richie was, was, I think, the oldest son, and he was like, when Hanrahan was going through all the changes uh, in the early 70s, he was a state senator. Uh, And, of course, he came up in the ranks, uh, as all good machine politicians uh, do. Uh, And in um, 1980, he was elected the state's attorney of Cook County. Uh, And that's, as I mentioned, in the 80s, uh, was when uh, the second decade of Burgess torture was happening and, and, and scores of black men were being tried, tortured, tried, convicted, sent to the penitentiary, sent to death row. And the most celebrated and notorious case, of course, is the Wilson brothers case in 1982 when they were uh, ultimately arrested, uh, tortured uh, mercilessly, uh, and charged and ultimately convicted of killing two white police officers. And that is where we have Daly and his first assistant, Richard Devine's fingerprints directly on knowledge because uh, there was a doctor uh, at the Cook County Jail, uh, Dr. Reba, who uh, looked at Andrew Wilson and saw all the injuries on him and wrote a letter to Brzezak, who was that, Richard Brzezak, who at that time was the police superintendent, saying, look, this guy was tortured. He was electric shocked. He was burned. He was, you know, beaten. He has all sorts of injuries on him. You need to do a full investigation. Now, Brzezak, who was a political uh, uh, adversary of Daly's, was kind of in a bind, right? Uh, if he uh, declared an investigation, he could... Uh, jeopardized the prosecutions of the Wilson brothers. So he decided to pass it on to Richie Daly and wrote him a letter and said, you know, I've got this information. Here's the, the, the detailed letter from the doctor, but I'm not going to do anything uh, unless you tell me to. Uh, and of course, he's sending this to the chief prosecutor of the Cook County who has ultimate authority to investigate and prosecute torturers, and specifically John Burge. Uh, and so Richie uh, calls in Devine uh, and another one of his top assistants, Bill Kunkel, and they huddle for a while, 
and they decide to pass it off to a, to a trusted machine um, associate uh, under the guise that they're going to to see, you know, to bury it. And of course, they bury it and don't investigate. Uh, and it takes what uh, from 1982 to 2008 when the feds ultimately indict Burge for uh, obstruction of justice and, and, and perjury uh, for there to be a full uh, investigation and prosecution uh, for the torture of the Wilsons that happened um, those decades before. So Richie was, was specifically told about the torture, did nothing about it, and then his his uh, top deputies uh, and um, assistants continued to use his Burge's evidence to use Burge's evidence over the next decade to convict men, black men, uh, and to and of course he uh, commended Burge. Got, they gave Burge a, a commendation for his work. Uh, not unlike the, the mm. bonus that O'Neill got, I suppose, when you think about it. Um, mm. And so Richie, uh, for those eight years, uh, was deeply involved and then became mayor. And as he became mayor, uh, for those 20 years, we were fighting to uncover. Uh, and in, as he first became mayor, we uncovered the fact that it wasn't just the torture of the Wilsons but it turned out to be a pattern in practice and that over the 20 years that he was the mayor, we were, uh, you know, raising hell in every forum we could about the fact that we were finding more and more cases of torture in the 70s and the 80s. And of course, Richie uh, did nothing uh, other than to defend against all those cases uh, in his role as the mayor. You you mentioned that Burge got a commendation. I, I was unaware of that uh, I probably forgot that over the years. Who gave him the commendation? Well, he got a couple of commendations. Um, he was uh, got a police commendation uh, from Brzezak, and then he got a commendation uh, from uh, Daly in '83. But more than the commendations, uh, Ben, look at look at his career path. He starts out as a detective. Uh, in 72, uh, fresh out of Vietnam and, and working on a POW camp uh, where torture was being practiced routinely. Um, and um, he shoots up the ranks, detective, sergeant, lieutenant, head of the violent crimes unit, uh, commander. Uh, and uh, when he was sentenced, uh, Fred Rice, uh, former police superintendent under uh, uh, Harold Washington, uh, came in to testify and said that Burge had gone up the ranks faster than any other Chicago police officer in the history of the Chicago Police Department. So he was well rewarded uh, for his work beyond a commendation here and there. What he was doing was roundly uh, accepted by those who were in the forefront of mass incarceration. Um, and, of course, many of those prosecutors uh, who uh, were taking those confessions uh, and, and trying those cases went on to be criminal court judges uh, and to continue uh, the cover-up uh, from, from the exalted bench. Mm. Wow, what a legacy. Uh, 
All right. So that leads me uh, to this culminating question uh, that I've been waiting to ask you for about uh, two weeks. Uh, do you think there's something peculiar to Chicago about what you just described? And just think about, just think about what you just described. The legacy of Chicago politics uh, and uh, its intersection with the criminal justice system and the fact that uh, two exceedingly popular and powerful mayors, both named Daly, either work directly with <laughs> the torturers, you know, or uh, commended them or promoted them or worked to cover up their crimes. Uh, and the fact that there was the killing of Fred Hampton and the tortures by Burge uh, and his uh, associates, do you think that's something uniquely Chicago, that hatred toward black people by powerful political operatives who are exceedingly popular by the voters? Is that a uniquely Chicago? I mean, the depths of it, the extent of it. I understand racism exists in every city, uh, but the depths of it, you know, the connection between the all-powerful uh, and the people whose hands are dirty, you know what I mean, with either the murders or the torture. Do you think there's something uniquely Chicago about this? Uh, is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> um, well, I struggle with this because I chose to live in this city. I could have lived anywhere. Uh, Flint, you know what I mean? This is the city I lived in. You too, young man. You too. I know. I know. And, and I think you touched on it when you said um, you, you asked if it's unique. I think it's a matter of degree. I don't think it's unique. Obviously, as you pointed out, you know, white supremacy and racism and politi political uh, violence through police and, and, and prosecutors is something that you can find in most big cities. I come from Boston, and certainly Boston has a, 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 a real history of, of virulent racism um, and other cities as well. Uh, but you won't necessarily find uh, 125 cases of men who were electric shocked and suffocated and, you know, subjected to, to medieval types of torture. You will find uh, coerced confessions. You will find wrongful convictions. You will find, you know, racism on the big city police departments, whether it's Boston or Philadelphia, New York, L.A., you know, it, 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 but the degree of it the degree of the systemic racism and white supremacy and the intertwining of the, of the powers that be. I mean, I'm working on a second book, and the second book looks uh, at the political structure. Of course, the first book was called The Torture Machine, and that was, of course, had the double entendre of the black box that's on the cover, uh, which, which it was the electric shock device, and the Chicago political machine. And so I'm kind of looking at that in more depth, you know, through Hanrahan and the prosecutors and Daly and the prosecutors and the judges this time, because the first book 
focus more directly on, you know, police and Burge and, and the torture and, 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 and the victimization and, and the gruesome details of the torture and the cover-up. Uh, so this time, I'm looking at what you're talking about, uh, about, you know, the, the, the subtle but real involvement of Richard Jay in all of this and the more direct involvement of, of, of Richie. And um, all that I've mentioned, I think, does go to make this city uh, in terms of the, you know, facilitating and, uh, of the, of the, of the uh, systemic racist violence and, and um, all that that entails with mass incarceration and, 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 all, and the like uh, does make it um, remarkable <laughs> in a way that you, if you looked at the history of some of the other cities, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be so blatant. It wouldn't be so uh, uh, undeniable, I suppose, mm. as it is here. Yeah. I, uh, I've never taken the deep dive to look at other cities. Uh, I just know what about, uh, Chicago, uh, and I, to, to the refrain that you, that you just ran through, I would add this, uh, Chicago has always been a segregated city. Uh, that segre segregation has been perpetrated, uh, by the housing policies, uh, in the economic development and the planning policies uh, of the mayors, the powerful mayors, especially Richard J. Daly, Flint, because uh, these powerful mayors, especially Daly, knew that there would be an uprising <laughs> uh, to, uh, by white people if uh, there was integration. Uh, and I kind of feel like this this violence against black people uh, that was kind of sanctioned by the powers that be. It's just another dimension to this, if you follow me, uh, and uh, the dehumanization of black people in the city of Chicago. Uh, and why I choose to live in this city, uh, Flint, uh, knowing all this, uh, you would have to be a psychiatrist and uh, examine me. And you're not a psychiatrist. Uh, you're a crusading lawyer and writer. So uh, I will not have you uh, analyze me today. I'll save that for a professional. Um, any thoughts you want to add before uh, we close down the interview? Well, I think uh, what you just said in terms of the broader questions of, of, of racism and white supremacy in this city, whether it be in housing, in the schools, and, you know, trap in the politics. And, and what, what I've also seen is the incredible resistance to, to uh, independent black politics, uh, black leaders and how Daly, of course, uh, was able to, um, with Dawson and with Holman and, you know, you name it, with Metcalf until he said it's never too late to be black, um, uh, kept the black community and its leadership under the thumb of the machine. Uh, at all costs. And so, yes, it's, an, it's a much broader story than just the mic, uh, the, the, looking at it through, through the telescope or microscope or lens of police violence and prosecutorial uh, corruption and judicial corruption, all of which is fundamental, fundamentally racist. And, uh, <clears throat> but those, of course, 
you better understand than I, uh, and I don't pretend to be an expert on it, but uh, it, I'd be a fool not to understand uh, that history, uh, at least to some uh, real degree. Mm. Yeah. All right, Flint Taylor, thank you very much. Uh, His first book, The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago, I have it right here in front of me. Uh, And um, again, go buy it or get it out of the library. I'm a big believer in using the public libraries, and I use them all the time, so I urge everybody to check it out. It's almost some branches all over town. And I can't wait for the second book, Flint. Uh, And uh, yeah, so uh, after... We're done with this interview. I want you to get a drink of water, have a little something to eat, then start writing. Okay, Flint, get back to work. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I can write back at you, Batman. (laughs) No, I'm going to the Bulls game tonight. Are you kidding? Uh, My beloved Bulls. (laughs) I remain loyal to my Bulls. That's why I stay here. I I I rant and rave about the political structure, but I love the the Bears, the Bulls. Oh my, the White Sox. I even like the White Sox. Well, well, you know, you you better you better hurry out there before they trade Zach Levine. Yes, unless it's for Zion Williamson, I'm open to that trade. All right, enough sports talk for today. Uh, Flint Taylor, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time, uh, and um, and uh, keep up the good work, and uh, bring you back. We'll do a, a deep dive on the John Burge case. All right. Love to do it. Love to do it, man. Keep you keep up the good work too. All right, that's Flint Taylor. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.